Um, we, uh, we are in the Gospel of Mark this week. We are in a different Gospel than last week, although the topic uh, about which we are talking tonight is going to be very similar. It's both, both the stories were about the calling of disciples. And uh, tonight we'll be starting in uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. And you may be thinking, wait, verse 14 is where only 14 verses in is when Jesus is already calling disciples? And the answer is yes, Mark uh, is not known for being very verbose. In fact, he's kind of a, a, not a really a great storyteller uh, in a lot of ways. In the first 13 verses of Mark that we aren't covering tonight, uh, there is no birth narrative for Jesus. Uh, there is an introduction to John the Baptist. Then there is all of John the Baptist's ministry covered. And then the baptism of Christ when he is called God's beloved covered. And then two whole verses uh, to the 40 days in the wilderness that Jesus spent being tempted. All of that is covered in 13 verses in Mark. So he, is, uh, he decides to get to it and through it quick. Uh, and tonight we are starting in verse 14, and John the Baptist is already getting arrested. So um, a lot happens, right? In, in Luke, it takes 80 verses to even get to Jesus' birth. Uh, and then two more chapters to get to the point where we are uh, 13 verses in on Mark. So uh, Mark leaves a lot to the imagination, right? He just kind of gives just the facts kind of thing. And so uh, we'll see a little bit of that tonight. But uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20 is where we are at uh, when we see Simon and Andrew and uh, James and John uh, being called uh, as disciples. So we're going to talk about discipleship tonight in kind of a broad sense. Um, yep, yeah, okay, so let's talk about it. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20 says this. Now after John was arrested... Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, quote, these are the first words we hear from Jesus in the entire gospel, kind of sets the tone for the entire gospel, and saying, quote, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in the boat, mending their nets. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. For The word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Are you quick to make decisions, like big decisions? I already saw some of you start to look at your spouses when I said that. Do you make decisions quick, or are you one of those deliberation people? Do you have a spreadsheet for everything, uh, mapped out all the possibilities ahead of time, right? Uh, for Sarah and I, I tend to be the quicker decision-making. It's not always good. I'm not placing a value on that, right? But I tend to make decisions a little more quickly. Uh, with the first time that when Sarah and I first started dating, as we were dating, it didn't take very long to me, for me to feel like this is someone I could maybe spend the rest of my life with. I mean, we had some issues we we're trying to figure out when we first started dating and work out our relationships. But then uh, we broke up. And we broke up because uh, Sarah said those magic words every guy hopes to hear um, from someone they, they think could be a potential spouse, which is, quote, there are things I look for in someone I marry and you don't have them, unquote. So... You may be asking, what was she looking for? Someone who was short and not charming and not the man of her dreams? I don't know. We don't know that yet. 
But we broke up for a while. We both dated someone else. We both realized that we really wanted to date each other. We got back together. And I mean, the moment I knew we were getting back together, I started setting aside money and thinking about the ring and thinking about marrying her. Like, I was ready to make that decision quickly, right? Even something that big. I can make a pretty quick decision. Not always, but generally speaking, I can do pretty good at that. But even as someone who can make a quick decision, uh, what the disciples do in this story makes my head spin a little bit, right? Because I'll I'll make a quick decision, but also on the same note, uh, we've been hand-washing dishes for a month in my house, and we still haven't chosen the perfect dishwasher model as if we know what that is. There's some things it's just hard to pull the trigger on, right? And yet, here we have these disciples making this rapid-fire decision. And Mark, in his brevity of words, he's walking by, there's two people fishing, he calls them, they drop their nets, their livelihood and follow him. Sees another couple guys, invites them along. They leave their dad in the boat and immediately follow, right? Who would do something that big that quickly? Just leave everything, just like that, right? The only job you've ever known, the way you pay for your, uh, everything that you need in your life, the only thing you're qualified to do, you just leave that for complete uncertainty, right? literally leaving your dad in the boat. And I don't know if you know, James and John are called the sons of thunder at different points. That makes Zebedee, their dad, thunder. And I don't know about you, but I'm not leaving thunder in the boat by himself. That seems like a bad idea, right? Now granted, again, Mark is all about the brevity, right? So he doesn't give details. If you read just these verses, all that Mark gives us, you would think that this is the first time these people have ever even laid eyes on this Jesus guy who just walks by and invites them. We don't know that that's true. I mean, the truth is that they could have heard him teach 20 times or 30 times before, right? They may be totally familiar with who he is and have just been waiting for an invitation. That that may be true. We don't know. It's not in the text. Mark wouldn't spend the time talking about needless details like that. But even if it's the 20th time they've heard him, this is an extreme decision to make. I honestly have a hard time putting myself in that position and thinking that I would actually do something like that. But we can't forget something about humanity. As hard as it can be to make certain decisions and to pull the trigger on certain things in our lives, the truth is that people can make all kinds of extraordinary choices, good and evil, all depending upon the premise they've accepted about the world. Right? Again, good or evil. So let's think on the dark side of this thing. Right? There were German Nazis who killed six million Jews because they believed, they really believed the premise that these people were subhuman. These people were the reason things aren't going well for us. They are ruining our country and, and, you know, our future is in doubt because of these people. They believed that premise and did something that is mind-blowingly evil. Something that's hard to wrap your mind around anyone taking part in, right? And on the other side of that same coin, there were people who put their own lives, their own livelihood online when they didn't have to to protect those very people who were being attacked and killed because they believed in the premise that that person's life is as important as mine. And just because I happen to be lucky enough not to be in the line of fire doesn't mean I get to ignore it, right? Depending on the premise you accept, human beings are capable of extraordinary things, good or bad. There, are, there were accepted premises behind everything from manifest destiny to the slave trade to genocide in Rwanda, 
and, all the, and behind all the heroic people who fought against all of those things, right? It may be evil or it may be good, but human beings are capable of incredible acts, things you can't imagine anyone doing, based on the natural results of the premise that they have accepted. Once you've accepted something as a certain way, of, once you've accepted a certain way of viewing reality, then people can do just about anything. So for our story today, let's go ahead and work off of an assumption. Now, whether it's the first time they heard him or the 30th time they heard him, whether they knew him or didn't know him at all, we have to work off the assumption that these new disciples of Christ believed the premise, right? They accepted as reality, as truth, that the thing, the time that they had all been waiting for for generations was now coming to pass in this person. They believed, to quote Nathaniel from last week, uh, whom Jesus called his disciple and told him a little bit about being under the fig tree and then made this first confession about who Christ was. They believed, to quote Nathaniel, that Jesus was the rabbi and the son of God and the king of Israel, right? They believed that premise. And so it seems, un, it seems incredulous that these folks would just drop everything and follow this person. But if you believe that all those things are really true, then it's not really all that incredible for them to drop their nets, to leave their father and to follow him. In fact, if you believe, if you really believe all those things are true, you could argue it's the only reasonable response. It would be bizarre to believe all of these things about Jesus and then say, no, nah, I'm good, I'm going to keep fishing. That would be a weird response. Because if it is true, then you simply cannot reasonably go on living like nothing has changed, right? It would have been unthinkable for Sarah and I to come home from the hospital 10 years ago after Lillian was born and keep living the same way we did before she arrived, right? Something had changed. The world was fundamentally different now. Our decisions needed to reflect that. And if you buy the premise, if you believe the premise, then these disciples were in that same position. And I'm going to go ahead and admit to you that we are now in the point of the sermon where I'm going to try and thread a needle that I'm not sure I can thread. Because it would be really easy to weaponize the rest of the sermon. Uh, this sermon is set up um, to make you guys uh, feel like, um, in the Greek it would be crap. <laughs> Some of you may already start, be starting to feel this way a little bit, right? They believe the premise. Don't you believe the premise? Right? Why don't you drop everything in your life and follow? Why don't you give it all? Now, pass the plate twice and sing just as I am, right? Le get you leaving here feeling terrible. But I have no interest in making you feel guilty or ashamed, and I have even less interest in something that I feel like happened to me a lot in church growing up. I have less interest in calling you to some vague notion of always giving God more, quote-unquote, that is largely undefined and mostly just serves to always make you feel like a spiritual failure. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not interested in doing that. Life is hard. Knowing how to follow is hard. Faith is tricky. God is gracious. All of those things. So take a breath. This is not that sermon. If you leave here just feeling shamed, then I missed it. I didn't, I didn't thread this needle correctly or you didn't hear me correctly. Let's go with that one. That makes me feel better. You didn't hear me correctly. Let's take that idea off the table. But with that said, we can't overcompensate on the other side 
too much and ignore what is a very clear premise and teaching of Jesus, the essential premise of all of discipleship. The premise is that we are asked to accept what these new disciples accepted on the front end, the premise of Jesus is Lord. And I know that Jesus is Lord is a phrase that is uh, used so much and so spiritualized that to a degree it becomes meaningless and we're not even sure what to do with it. But if we do accept that premise, it has enormous implications, right? To say Jesus is Lord is to say that nothing stands above him. That everything else in our world is ordered underneath this one person. Nothing gets preeminence. Nothing else gets to be, quote-unquote, Lord of our lives, right? Not success, not tradition, not my family history, not being effective or happy or comfortable, not money or power or politics or security or anything else. Everything gets understood in light of whoever or whatever is Lord of our lives. If something is the Lord of our life, everything else bows down to it or to them. Before monotheism, most humans had multiple lords in their life. Most people had some kind of worldview that allowed for many different gods, right? Uh, before uh, monotheism was a thing, you would have you would maybe make a sacrifice to the rain gods because your crops needed some water. Or you'd make a sacrifice to the fertility god because you and your wife were not able to bear children in the way you wanted to. Or maybe you were making a trip and so you would make a small sacrifice to the god of the forest and one to the god of the plains and one to the god of the sea because you were getting on a boat. There was all these gods out there that you were trying to please and find a way to you know, make sure they bless you. All these kind of things. Before monotheism, that's what was happened. And that's the world that Judaism showed up within, right? And the central premise of Judaism is, is, can be boiled down to what's called the Shema Yisrael. It's found in Deuteronomy. You guys have all heard it. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The Lord your God is one, right? Love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And it says, you know, teach this to your children. Post it to your doorways. Stick it to your forehead, right? Like never forget this one thing. The Lord, your God, is one. Love your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. Everything ordered underneath the one God. There is no division of love or allegiance. There is one Lord, everything ordered underneath. Now, of course, I grew up like most of you grew up, having never really been in a situation where we considered anything but monotheism. So that's not really the struggle uh, philosophically. However, if I'm honest with you, uh, I have spent uh, most of my life with many different lords. I knew monotheism, I knew to claim it, but I've had many different lords. There's been a lot of things in my life that have ordered everything else around, right? A lot of things besides Jesus and Jesus' teachings. My lords have been my own appetites and my own desires, my own maybe sadness or my politics or my desire to be successful or well-liked. There's a lot of different things that have ordered my life. I've had a lot of different lenses through which I viewed everything else. I, like I think everyone, I hope, so I don't feel bad about myself, we all struggle to be practical monotheists. But the question that we are asking ourselves today and considering is, do we believe, do we accept the premise that Jesus is Lord? Or another way of saying this is, who or what is discipling me? Who is forming me? Who is my Lord? 
I think that's one of the chief questions we need to consistently ask ourselves as people of faith. And I would argue it's the main problem the church of today needs to wrestle with. When the public at large is asked what they think about quote-unquote Christians or followers of Christ, rarely is their answer anything that looks like the actual person of Jesus, right? If you look at any, uh, any of the studies that have gone out where people get asked this question, uh, we're called a lot of things in general. A lot like Jesus isn't one of them. The church, I would argue, has ordered itself under many things, politics, money, power, but often, not very often, just the person and teachings of Jesus. It's one of the things that, that I don't quite get about that big advertising campaign that's gone out, the He Gets Me uh, advertising campaign. Now, I'll be honest, I, I don't disagree with any of those commercials, right? I mean, the, the things they say in them, they're really well done. I agree with what's said in them for the most. I haven't seen one where I was like, oh, theologically, that's just way off the mark. No, I, I, actually, I actually agree with it, right? But I think it's like a treatment based on a misdiagnosis because it's, it's what, it's, what it's trying to treat is this uh, idea that, oh man, people out there don't understand or like Jesus, and so we need to get them to like Jesus. I think people at large really like Jesus. They just don't like us. They don't like those of us that claim Jesus, right? Jesus doesn't have a PR problem. The people that claim to represent him do. Um, they just can't make sense of everyone who loudly claims Jesus and then acts nothing like them. Jesus is always supposed to be the central claim of the church at large, but he is not always the Lord. We struggle communally just like we struggle individually. And we're certainly not always discipled or ordered by him. <clears throat> I think this understanding, this idea of accepting the premise is why you see such extreme reactions from these common fishermen who give up everything and follow. They drop their nets and they walk away from life as they know it because they understand something that we often do not. That you will always be discipled by whatever you immerse yourself within. You'll always be discipled by whatever you immerse yourself within, right? They understood that to follow Jesus, they had to, you know, and this is way out there, in order to follow Jesus, they had to, like, actually go and follow Jesus. They couldn't stay fully immersed in their jobs or their family dynamics as they had always been and still become something new. Because we are disciples of whatever we give all of our time and attention to. If you spend all day watching cable news, you'll be discipled by our politics. If you spend all day watching only the financial markets, eventually you'll be discipled by our economics, and that will be what orders the world. If you spend all day doing whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, you'll be a disciple of your own appetite at some point. Whatever you immerse yourself within will become what is most important to you in this world, right? And that's what you become a disciple of. Our Old Testament reading uh, that you heard earlier was from the story of Jonah, which is probably my favorite Old Testament book. At some point we need to go through that whole book again. I, I love it. But in the reading tonight, here's Jonah, who's supposed to be a prophet of God, but who is very obviously not a disciple of what God teaches, right? He's a prophet of God, but his own feelings, his own culture, his own culture's history are his Lord. I mean, he goes into town. Uh, first, first, he runs away when God tells him to go to Nineveh, which is the place that no one likes and that has been awful towards Israel, and they are the worst, right? He, he wants nothing to do with them, so he runs away, 
gets in the water, swallowed by a fish, you know the whole nine. So he has a bit of a come to Jesus moment uh, and gets spit up by the fish, literally thrown up onto the beach by the fish. And God says, now do you want to go to Nineveh? And he goes, fine. And he literally walks one third of the way into the country, preaches an eight word sermon and leaves. He does the bare minimum because he doesn't want Ninevites to find forgiveness. He doesn't want Ninevites to be saved. He wants bad things to happen to those people. And somehow this guy who doesn't even want to do it does as little as he possibly can, and it's the most successful eight-word sermon that's ever been preached in the world. The entire country repents, and God turns away, and they don't suffer the consequences that God was going to send their way. And then Jonah throws a hissy fit and says, it'd be better for me to be dead. Like, just kill me now, Lord. Right? Just, just high dramatics from Jonah. Jonah is supposed to be a prophet of God, but he is not ordered by God's love. He's ordered by his own sense of justice, his own sense of revenge of what is right and what is wrong in the world. So even though God uses him, he's missing out on all of God's goodness. The entire book ends with him uh, wanting to die because a plant was killed. Killing him. I mean, he's just doing great, right? We gather in this room uh, or in this building or with each other once or twice or three times a week to remind ourselves of this premise. Jesus is Lord. That my self-understanding, that my politics, that my economics, that my, value, that my values and my ethics, that are all ordered by him. That's what it means to be a disciple. It's not about giving mental assent to some ideas about who God is or isn't, accepting some certain theological stance, Jesus never asked for any of that. He just asked for people to follow him. This is what it means to be a disciple, to accept this premise and then let everything else come from that place. Of course, this is much easier said than done. Like these fishermen who dropped everything, these fishermen who showed a kind of commitment that most of us have never really had to face, even they struggled the whole time. They don't get it. Uh, they get called Satan at different points. They run away when the time comes. They betray Jesus for money. They make every possible mistake. It's easier said than done. And we, like those first disciples, will question, we will get angry, we will get scared, we will run, we will betray sometimes. And Christ's mercy, thankfully, will keep inviting us back to his humble, gracious love. Because that's who God is. We will miss this as much as we get it. But it doesn't make it any less true. So if Jesus is Lord, then becoming a disciple is really the only choice that makes any sense at all. Why would we do anything else? This is what we mean when we say we follow Christ. And though we may never really get it right, it should always be the destination we're aiming for. Let's pray.
God, we are grateful. We are grateful that our lives do not need to be formed by all the broken things in this world. That we don't have to allow the money and the power and the politics and the violence and the every other thing in this world that demands our allegiance that we don't have to say yes to any of them. That while we live in this world, we do not have to live of this world. God, we confess that on a consistent basis, uh, we fail in every way imaginable. That by most measures, we are not very good disciples. And so we lean into your grace and your forgiveness and your mercy. And we trust that your love can bridge any gap we have. But God, we ask that tonight you remind us once again and give us courage and conviction to order our lives by the one thing that warrants it. Lord, may we accept the premise. May we truly lean into the idea that you are the Lord of all. May we let everything else in our life be oriented towards that one truth so that we might experience the fullness of what you have for us in this world. God, we do love you, and we ask all these things in your name. Amen.